Welcome to Voices from the Frontlines, your national movement building show. The core of the program tonight is going to be a conversation with myself and an old friend and comrade, Reese Ehrlich. Uh, the title of the thing you got in the mail if you register on voicesfromthefrontlines.com says the 2020 elections was at stake for those who want peace and non-U.S. intervention with China. Russia, Venezuela, Iran, and the Third World. And I'll tell you more about Reese's qualifications in a minute. Reese, you on the line? I am indeed. Good. Nice to hear you, and Leanne sends our regards. Well, hello back. Okay. I know you're having some voice issues, but we'll make it happen. Um, so now you're going to listen to my opening uh, monologue for about six or seven minutes. Uh, two different thoughts. One, just on the most anecdotal level is this is about how Rite Aid is a fascist con- company. And also the the word fascist is being thrown around a lot. But I just had a few early thoughts about since I think about it all the time. So I, you know, as you get a little older, you, you develop these things called medications. And as you have medications, you go into pharmacy. And as you go to pharmacy... There's a person called a pharmacist, which are the sometimes the coolest people you meet. There's the, whoever is attracted to this field are people that like people and medicine. They are very cool. Are they cool? Yeah. Yeah, and they know you. They care. They talk to the insurance company for you. They they call you up and tell you your refills aren't ready, are ready, and they they're really great. So I have particularly two great people that help me, and I'm not going to say which right it is. So I get an email from Rite Aid. We'd like you to evaluate your experience. So I'm thinking, okay. Um, I had a particularly good day today. I'm going to just, I know I, the goal, the first thing is you're going to learn. The only correct answer is 10, which I'll tell you in a minute. If they say from 1 to 10, if you give them a 9, they get fired, which I'll explain in a minute. So I get an email, and, and I'm saying, okay. So I said, how did you like your Rite Aid experience? 10. Uh, what do you think of the pharmacist? Ten. Would you come back again? Yes. I think the thing is over. All right. Was he friendly to you? What? Did he? Did you ask for the prescription, or did he first ask you if you need some help? Well, he's making eye contact with you. Did he offer you the right aid discount? I mean, each one I'm going, dude, 
how many questions eventually somebody's going to flunk this test because you're asking so many questions about his behavior it's almost like was he servile did he kiss every part of your body uh it's so insulting and yet the people tell me ahead of time if you get a questionnaire please i need all tens the fear in their voice when they these are people who have already done something great for you so it's a whole nother subject and i don't think there's a two-party debate on this, unfortunately, but it's a very serious issue about labor rights. This new, uh, you know, further and further intervention of technology and management into the lives of workers to the point where there's virtually no life. And since I spent so much time in my life dealing with getting black people out of prison and Latinos out of prison and you're just watching the police state just moving tighter and tighter, even on the more privileged members of the society who have previously been somewhat protected from it. It's not equal, but it just shows you that the system just will not stop. It, it can't stop itself. Um, so I think I'll leave that because it is an analogy of the United States. The United States can't stop itself. It just can't. It is an imperialist country. It has certain drives. Those of us who have done our whole life to at first think we could overthrow it, then we thought we could restrict it, and now we're just trying to resist it in every way we can. We see the country can't help itself and doesn't want to. It's not like it's passive. So in that context, I introduced my friend and colleague and comrade, Reese Ehrlich. So the, the short bio I did for him is... Uh, Let's see. Uh, oh, so we'll start Reese. is a long-term activist, organizer, writer whose work goes back to 1965, stopped the draft week in Oakland, where you're part of the Oakland Seven, and continues to this day. In 1968, he went to the Republic of Cuba, has been a friend of their democratic, socialist, and anti-imperialist revolution ever since. This is reflected as an important book, Dateline Havana, the real story of U.S. policy and the future of Cuba that Reese wrote with Stephen Kinzer. Was that enough to put you on every other list of the FBI that you're not on? Mm -hmm. Hello. Reese? Yeah, I'm sorry. Say again? I said, was that enough of an introduction oh. to put you well, on well, every got, single... I've got, I've got uh, hours and hours and more that we can add, but sure, that's fine. Just a quick couple <laughs> corrections. Um, Kinzer wrote the introduction to Dayline Havana, and uh, Stop the Draft Week was in 1967. But the gist of what she said was absolutely true, and today I am an adjunct professor in international studies at the University of San Francisco, as well as a columnist writing foreign correspondent column. Got it. So the, I'm going to start with my interpretation of my question. And you'll tell me if you agree with the general jest, and then we'll go country by country about what the United States is doing in those countries. Is that okay? Of course. Okay. So I'm going to start. What is at stake for those who want peace and non-U.S. intervention with China, Russia, Venezuela, Iran, and the Third World? So the first thing as we go into the debate tonight, which is going to be very frightening to me, is yes, I do think there are significant differences between Biden and Trump. But when we move to the question and we get away from Social Security and other things, when we get to U.S. 
intervention in the world. Watch who's going to trip over the other to hate China more. I'm very frightened about that because, as I'll say, the United States brought China into its world, capitalist world, was so happy when they could do that. But China is beating the United States at its own game, is far more advanced technologically, better environmental policies. And now the United States is claiming foul and saying that China is stealing our ideas, which is pretty ridiculous. So my view, and along with uh, uh, Obama saying that the United States would be a Pacific power and reinvent, reintervening in, uh, in Asia, is a bipartisan imperialism that's very terrifying. On the issue of, obviously, uh, Russia, the United States is virtually, NATO is virtually impinging on Russia. Uh, the fight over Ukraine was an effort in some way to protect itself. We don't have to like Russia to say that there's Russia and China are trying to create some kind of block against the United States efforts to take over the world. Venezuela and Cuba are the last two independent voices in Latin America. And Iran is the only virtual non-U.S. client in the Middle East. The general concept which George Floyd would understand is I can't breathe, is the United States will not let anybody in the world breathe who's not under their thumb. That's my overall view. So, Reese, what do you think of that? And then we'll go, uh, what do you think of that perspective? And we'll go country by country. Yeah, I think that's, I, I agree with you. Um, there's, it operates on several levels. For the big countries like China and Russia, uh, the U.S., Fears commercial competition. You know, supposedly we believe in free markets and uh, whoever has the best products uh, survives and prospers and so on. In fact, when other countries come up with better products than the U.S., they use every dirty trick in the book, including planting spies in their uh, and spy apparatus in their computers and so on, to undermine them commercially and keep the U.S. corporations on top, or at least that's their effort closely combined with that is to promote scare tactics, which is that, oh, my God, China is going to take our, fill in the blank, they're stealing our jobs, they're um, a major military power in the China Sea, they're um, the new enemy du jour, uh, you got to watch out, their, their TikTok is taking over the dance craze. That's right. I mean, everything, anything you can find negative <clears throat> about China um, is thrown into the pot and re-echoed through the mainstream media. And it has an impact on people in the United States, too, because people who would have had a fairly benign view of China, they may not have liked the Chinese economic political system, but now they're bombarded almost daily with alleged human rights abuses and stealing American technology and interfering in elections, most, if not all, of which is made up uh, or exaggerated. Yeah, and just to say there a minute, Reese, that, you know, this country has a long history of causing every war and yet paying almost no price for it. So you have a country that is it by itself, in my opinion, pro-imperialist. Too many forces by now, all the police, all the prison guards, all the military bases inside the United States, all the defense contractors and military contractors, they've and then all the white fascists. 
So the hatred of others, the desire to go, almost the desire to go to war, is scary. You know, I mean, so it's everything you said, right? T- tell them the TikTok story. This is very important because Trump forced a Chinese-based company, as I understand it, to sell to. to sell its adjunct uh, TikTok. Did it go through to either Oracle or Walmart or? So tell us that story because. Uh, <laughs> okay. So there's this app. It's very popular in the United States. It's very popular around the world. <clears throat> it's owned by a Chinese company. Ironically, it's not in China. It's not allowed to be used <laughs> in China. Okay, with this? Yeah. Yet, and what it, it's mainly, it's called TikTok, and it's mainly known for videos of dance moves. I'm not, I'm not right, making these right. Teenagers and others get on, film themselves, singing, dancing, doing wild steps, and they go viral, and everybody has a good time. Well, Almost overnight, the Trump administration decided this was a major national security threat. <laughs> I mean, maybe the Chinese were going to be learning new dance steps or <laughs> right. getting ahead in the world of video singing. I don't know. But the argument was, oh, this program could collect data on American users, which could then be used for some nefarious purpose, which they never exactly explained. Ignoring the fact that American companies, every time you use an app, in a U.S.-owned company, they're collecting massive amounts of data. Of course, that's right. And we know that they, we know what they're using it for. Everything from legal, you know, quote-unquote legal efforts to, um, you know, sell you products to all kinds of nefarious activities to influence your uh, buying habits, to uh, deep in, dig into your psyche, and all kinds of stuff. Far more dangerous than any Chinese company has ever um, been proven or even indicated that they do. So Trump decides to turn it into campaign time. He's, he's part of an anti-China campaign in general. So he says they're a national security threat by executive order, not by vote of Congress or anything else, by executive order. This privately held company must sell itself to an, and become American-owned company. Right. And he goes to Oracle uh, well, actually, they went to Microsoft. They did various kind of, kind of things along the way, but the latest iteration was um, to go to Oracle and to Walmart and to sell them uh, a share in TikTok. The courts have ruled so far that that's illegal and have blocked it. That's the latest development. Now, who knows once the decision is appealed, what what will happen? Um, there's a lot of controversy. The but it really reveals and tears away the mask that, oh, the U.S. just works for national security purposes. What they were doing was there's a highly effective, very popular, benign product that some other country was selling, which we didn't want them to do. And we wanted that money and the revenues and the profits to go to a U.S. company. So by decree, the President of the United States says, you have to sell your company to this company over here, which just happens to be owned by the United States. So Hold on, Channing's got a question. Go ahead. Well, yeah. not a question, but also the the thing I think about because I do the social media for the Strategy Center and for Voices from the Front Lines is that culture is also another form of organizing. And so, you know, give. I don't think China has any type of – I mean, they're not doing TikTok in their own country. Uh, but any way that Trump can stop black people from seeing Chinese, another, you know, independent people of color as any way friendly, 
I think he's going to do it. Um, and I need to do a lot more study, but I think do think about the time of the, the you know, the... You know, the, I don't know what to call it, the sunrise of the, the communist movement here in the United States and how close it was to Russia and China and, you know, Chinese and black people working together for against the United States. And so I think that's a really beautiful thing. I said that right into the mic. There you go. No, I, I agree with you that culture plays an important role in this. I often offer the example that, you know, imperialism is an all-inclusive system. It's not just economics and profit for corporations. It's political, it's military, it's cultural. So the U.S. invades a country to put a country in power, a government in power that controls the oil wells, that sells the oil to the United States, that allows U.S. military bases there or nearby in order to protect the profits of the companies making the oil. And then they, some of the money goes to movie companies, TV companies, record and recording right. industry, to produce culture to take, teach you to hate your own country. Wow. That this yes. stealing of your oil is legitimate because the United States has a superior culture and you don't. And that's exactly the game they play with China, which is, except China ain't going for it because they, they laugh at they talk when the U.S. talks about how old its culture is. You know, we go back 200 years in the U.S., that's something really old. That's, that's like barely anything in China. Well, let me ask you this, please, because... Uh, let's talk about Russia and China and the, is it called the Belt and Road Project? How's, uh, I listen to a lot of business shows and like, you know, listen to a lot of things. There's, there's a growing respect and even, you know, people are saying that while Trump is worrying about TikTok, that China and Russia are going into Africa or building good relationships with European countries. You know, we always talk about the, what all the bad things the United States is doing. How significant, and since I'm hopeful, how hopeful are you about Russia and China being able to sustain just any resistance to the U.S. efforts to take over the world? Well, first of all, it's important to understand they really are two different economic of course. systems. Um, they are allies of necessity, right. along with the other countries you mentioned, Iran, Cuba, Venezuela, all of them have very different economic, political systems and so on. But they're all under attack from the United States, and they're, and they're grouping together for that reason, and understandably so. Um, China's Belt and Road policy, I mean, think about this. If the United States went around the world and built massive construction projects, bridges, dams, airports, highways, trains, things that were badly needed, and they were done on the basis of low-interest loans or, or no loans at all, um, sorry, I'm, I'm, I don't, didn't realize my phone was going to be on here. Um, the, uh, and if the United States was doing that, it would be hailed around the world as a great success for soft power or for U.S. Right. economic system. When Ch China does it, and that's exactly what they've been doing now for quite a long time, oh, it's a sign of the nefarious activity to take over um, and, and uh, dominate the world, uh, and they're putting, they're, they're creating death, uh, debt, uh, meaning um, they're forcing these countries to take loans which they can't, can't pay back. They come up with all kinds of reasoning, but in fact, you dig into it, and the vast majority of, they have made some mistakes and there have been errors, but on the whole, the countries receiving this aid are very thankful and very grateful 
because there's no other way they would be able to afford those kind of projects. And Russia, to a lesser degree, um, is, is doing the same things in the, kind of the area of its influence, the areas of the old Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, to the extent they can. China is much more of a global scale. As you mentioned, China, uh, Africa, uh, parts of uh, Asia, and even uh, parts of uh, South America. Well, let me ask you this, Reese. Uh, you, you, I, I want to say a lot. This is Reese Ehrlich we're talking to. is an old friend, and uh, he was actually in Oakland in 1965. He forgot that. He thinks it's 1968, but I saw him earlier. So the, the point is that, uh, you know, your memory is a little off, but I know better. But anyway, I'm saying he's got a long movement history and a, a really good guy. And he's done a, a, he's decided to focus for many, many years as a writer and columnist and observer on international affairs, which is great. So he's got a lot of different books he can tell you about. So here's the question. Uh, let's talk about Africa for a minute. I mean, uh, I remember when... Oh, God, when the South African, you know, Communist Party came to power and the, well, tried to, and the ANC came to uh, at least, you know, electoral power, not economic power. Very quickly, I remember Mbeki saying we have to create an alternative to African pessimism that it's almost like the abandoned continent now, you know. Uh, what's been the history of China and Africa? How long, you know, what history do you know of? When did, when was the primary uh, initiative begun? What's it like now? A lot of our listeners are very, you know, interested in Africa, sure. as am I. Sure. Um, quick footnote. I, I agree with you. I was indeed in Berkeley in 1965. <laughs> I was referring to the night. I know, Reese. Uh, it's a sense of humor. It's a joke, Reese. I get it. I get the point. Oh, a joke. Okay. Yeah, yeah. See, it was a sense of yeah, irony we, there. We, we folks are way too serious. Okay. All right, got it. Um, Africa and ANC and so on. So China, in the 60s, um, long before it became the kind of economic power that it is today, was engaged in uh, road and rail and other construction projects in Africa. There was the Tanzam Railroad, the Tanzambia Railroad, if you may remember. they uh, ex- you know, express solidarity. They, they have wide trade relations um, with uh, Angola and with other countries in Southern Africa. Um, and they, um, I think the key thing there is that because China gets a bad rap for um, exploiting workers and engage- allegedly engaging in human rights abuses in certain countries and so on, um, they engage in commercial trade that is not exploitive. That is, they're not going in with the idea of owning and dominating and controlling an entire industry like the U.S. or France or other imperialist countries do. Uh, They are, in most cases, one of a number of uh, countries involved in exploring for oil, buying and selling at world prices, and uh, to the mutual benefit of uh, people. And the Belt and Road Projects, uh, are also being extended to help build the infrastructure. Can you give us any examples? I don't know if it's in the area of your expertise. Could you give us like an example right now of China's relationship to one specific African country that you think is very positive that our listeners might want to know about? Um, I, you're absolutely right. This is not an area of my expertise. I focus a lot more on the Middle East. Um, I just know 
in terms of trade with Angola. I've read comments from both the Angolan and the um, Chinese governments are praising, and same with Namibia. But I do not know the details of those programs. Okay, cool. I'm going to do some work on it because I want to know myself. Uh, so let's go to the area that, you know, I know you've done a lot of work on, obviously, is the Middle East. Uh, you know, I, it's funny, we've had a lot of volunteers at the Strategy Center, and in terms of the non-black, non-Latino uh, people, a significant number of them have turned out to be Iranian uh, mm-hmm. graduate students who have been attracted to the Strategy Center have come in. So I need to, uh, you know, there's so much I need to learn on everything. But tell us the present we know, you know, the past is a whole long story, but what's the dynamic now going on between Iran and the United States? What are the fault lines? I believe that there's an embargo that's just brutal going on. Oh, and, absolutely, yes. And so why don't you tell us about U.S. and Iran right now, what it looks like? Well, at this moment, the relations are uh, an all-time low in recent history, and that's not easy because it's been pretty low. Right. Um, there was a, a nuclear accord agreed to not only just by Iran and the United States, but by um, five other countries as well. It was passed by the, unanimously by the, the UN Security Council. Uh, and basically, it, the Iranians agreed to not develop nuclear weapons and to allow intrusive inspections. And the U.S. Allow, agreed to allow Iran to develop or uh, process its own uranium for nuclear power, not for nuclear weapons and to uh, drop sanctions related to the nuclear issue uh, and allow normal trade with Iran and between Iran and the U.S. and Iran and other countries. Um, when Trump came in, he basically negated that agreement unilaterally. Once again, just he decides to sign a piece of paper, and we're stuck with whatever he wants um, with the imperial presidency. Uh, they imposed very harsh sanctions against Iran, uh, not only that, there's been active sabotage by both Israel and the U.S. against nuclear facilities in Iran, against uh, in ethnic minority regions. Uh, whole, we hear about the economic sanctions. We don't get as much news about the uh, sabotage, basically, the, the uh, vicious murders and bombings and so on that go on at the behest of the U.S. Or, and or Israel. Uh, and this is in the face of the fact that Iran had made tremendous sacrifices and, and um, compromises in order to right. agree to that nuclear accord. So the, the one, or not the one, but a positive development, if Biden were to win, is I think there would be a change in Iran policy. I, don't th- I think he upholds the agreement that was made under, with Obama. They may try and go back and renegotiate parts of it, but fundamentally uh, they do disagree with what uh, the Trump administration is doing, and the Iranians understand that Biden disagrees with that. And they tell me, my Iranian contacts in private tell me the government is just waiting out through the elections <coughs> in hopes that, that Biden wins and Trump loses. Um, who else in the world, uh, on the positive, hopes that Biden wins and Trump loses? What about, talk about Venezuela and yeah, Cuba. Yeah, pretty, well, actually, pretty much everybody in the world. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's when, a good... When you stop it, when you put it that was Resort Alec. You heard it all. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's pretty hard to find any country in the world that wants to see Trump elected. Right. 
You think about it. There's nobody. I mean, uh, wait. So are you breaking? Right? Uh, is something happening? I'm sorry. Is is, it, is the problem in my headphone? And yeah, I'm sorry. So, uh, but the countries that are kind of most um, out front uh, in opposing Trump. I mean, they're not formally because you know countries don't officially right. take stands on other countries' elections, and so everybody knows they do it. But so I don't mean in a formal sense. But Cuba is very anxious to see the defeat of Trump uh, because, uh, he, you know, there were positive relations that were developed under Obama. Not everything that should have been done or could have been done, but, you know, uh, a million Americans visited Cuba who had never been there before and saw firsthand that Cuba is not the harsh, repressive dictatorship claimed by the U.S., uh, run by friendly people, uh, friendly to the United States, and uh, everyone benefited by opening up re- relations. And then Trump put the reverse on that, and, uh, and then the pandemic hit, and Cuba is suffering quite a bit as a result. The, uh, of course, Venezuela is threatened. Well, hold on. Can I ask you one more question on, re- yeah. on this? I don't know if there's any reason you would know or just read about it, but I am hoping that the younger generation of Cubans who have traveled back and forth would not be necessarily Republican voters. I would not be as interested in the, the harsh anti-Cuban politics. Yeah, Do you have any reason to believe that might be oh, true? Yeah, no, that is, that is true. The, there's a split in the Cuban-American community. In this case, we're talking about citizens. Right. right. Um, the younger generation are not anywhere near as anti-communist and belligerent as the older generation who have an economic as well as a political ties to the harsh ultra-right-wing policies that Trump is carrying out. Um, and there's regular travel. You know, despite all the restrictions on travel, every day there's flights that leave out of Miami to fly into Havana, and they're mostly Cuban-Americans or Cubans of some kind. And, um, yes, so there's definitely a split. And, of course, when you add in other Latinos in Florida right. it's, who are not Cuban, you know, there's... Puerto Ricans. Puerto Ricans, Dominicans, and so on and so forth. Um, there is a uh, positive potential for the Latino vote going Democrat in November. Well, that's, that's you know, in terms of concrete things that Obama did, of working with the Pope, you know, that uh, there are differences. That's the point. And uh, I'm hoping very much that the liberalization of travel with Cuba you know, might impact the Florida elections in ways that I think might be good for society. Now let's move to Venezuela for a little bit. And by the way, you're on KPFK on Voices from the Front Lines, uh, 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, and streaming live on the web at kpfk.org. would it be possible to just get a little bit of D'Angelo, a little bit of uh, a break music? And we'll be right back with Reese Ehrlich. And we could go to the phones if you're interested, which we'll get to later. But Reese, you're doing great. Just uh, drink some tea, and I'll call you in two minutes. Just stay on the line. Sounds good. Okay.
Everybody, welcome to Voices. Welcome back to Voices from the Frontlines. You're on National Movement Building Show. I'm here with Channing Martinez in studio, D'Angelo Jones on the controls, and with Reese Ehrlich, uh, the author of uh, Dateline Havana, the real story of U.S. policy in the future of Cuba, not with Stephen Kinzer, except for the introduction. <laughs> so, with that very clear, never to be said again. <laughs> is uh, all right. So let's talk about Venezuela. I mean, uh, let me start by something that I I'm trying to figure out the date, but whenever uh, Chavez, I think it was around 2006, is what I'm thinking, when Chavez won his first full his first re-election campaign. Uh, I think it was 2006. Manuel Criollo and I, from the strategies, and we were invited down by some very revolutionary and progressive Venezuelan groups and uh, for the election. And we went. And uh, on the plane were a lot of uh, Latinos who were uh, working to actually do, a, what do you call it, uh, international examination of the election, inspections, which I didn't think was so great. But the point was, there was a lot of excitement about the election. We were staying at a very nice hotel, and at 5 in the morning, the bells start ringing. This is on election day. And the bells are ringing at churches, and I don't know, enormous noise. And I went down to get coffee around 6.30. I look outside. There's a line all around the block already for people that want to vote. I mean, it was like at six in the morning, uh, and I looked at, and many of them, of course, were indigenous Latinos and were black in, uh, Venezuelans, and uh, they were determined to reelect Chavez. And of course, there was this more European Venezuelan, and she was—I don't know what she was. Oh, she probably came out of the hotel, and she said, "You know, if if, if Chavez was elected." things are not going to be so good for you and me. And I went, uh, excuse me, ma'am, <laughs> if you don't mind, uh, what do you mean me, white man? So, the, But the point was, <laughs> you know, the point was how clear it was, just like today they say Trump is the only thing holding us off from a communist revolution. The point I'm getting to is I never saw more enthusiastic for, enthusiasm for voting, more open society, more democratic Life, not just votes, but the daily life of Venezuela was exciting as hell. And we must have met with, you know, 10 or 15 vital community organizations with the full support of the Venezuelan government, who were somewhat <laughs> struggling with the Venezuelan government, you know. But 
it, I saw it with my own eyes is the point, how brilliant and beautiful it was. And then, of course, Chavez won, and the election we saw in the election commission swore him in. It was just magnificent, one of the turning points in my life. So, obviously, that revolution threatened the hell out of the United States uh, to a terrible blow to history. Chavez came down with uh, cancer and died, and he's re re been replaced by Nicolas Maduro. I have not been able to, you know, now it's much more complicated. The U.S. counter-revolution is there. It clearly looks a lot like Pinochet and, and Allende. Take us in the present. How in the world is the Maduro government even surviving? What's going on and what role is the United States playing? Um, I've reported from Venezuela five times in, before Chavez was elected and afterwards and most recently a couple of years ago. And um, there's no question contrary to what the mainstream media and others tell us, that Chavez and Maduro had popular support, uh, initially the overwhelming popular support of particularly ordinary Venezuelans, working-class folks, small farmers, small business people, and so on. Um, in recent years, several things happened. Uh, the oil price dropped internationally. Yeah, enormously. global impact all over the world, every oil-producing country, uh, had tremendous problems, and Venezuela was among them. Uh, unfortunately, they hadn't taken steps to diversify the economy. It was created, the Venezuelan economy was created basically to sell oil to the United States and to buy everything else from the United States. Right. And um, that was, a, that came, that problem continued even after Chavez and Maduro were elected. Um, and uh, there was a real economic crisis. And then went sensing possible victory, first Obama and then Trump, uh, basically initiated policies to overthrow the Venezuelan government, the elected government of the country. And, of course, they, say, they claim, oh, there was falsified election returns. And this, this guy who was the national head of the National Assembly, he's the real president. Remember Guaido? Yeah, of course. Uh, who's ever heard of Guaido now? Right. <laughs> you know, oh, Guaido who? Um, so they, and, they and, and literally hired mercenary troops to invade from Colombia, right. paid for by the opposition in Venezuela to come in and overthrow Maduro. They were caught red-handed. I mean, just the kinds of stuff that you thought theoretically ended in the 1950s, uh, but of course has gone on for ever since and continues to today. And then when it's pointed out that the U.S. and the U.S.-backed opposition fund counter-revolutionary coup plotters, oh, well, that was just, uh, they just did a bad job. That's, that's, that's the argument that's put forward. Uh, they're, they're, they're just incompetent. Uh, but nevertheless, the people of Venezuela hate their government and want the U.S.-backed opposition to come to power. Uh, the situation is extremely difficult for the people of Venezuela. A lot of people have left the country to nearby Brazil or Colombia. Uh, those who had money, visas, flee to the United States. Um, and it's because the, um, uh, the, it's a combination of the economic problems that existed before the uh, crackdown uh, by the U.S. and the imposition of uh, sanctions and the very intense sanctions that the U.S. has imposed. Uh, the only way it's going to get resolved is if the U.S. gets rid of those sanctions, stops the attacks on Venezuela, and allows the country to proceed economically in, in its own way, in its own time. You know, 
<coughs> excuse me, you know, the thing, excuse me. <coughs> By the way, if you want to call 818-985-5735 to talk to Reese, ask him questions on topic, uh, that's, you know, you, our listeners are good, you know, the two-minute rule, and actually relate to the person on the other side of the microphone. Uh, you guys are great at it, and we'd love to hear from you at 818-985-5735. I mean, things you and I have, you know, talked about directly and indirectly for the last 40 years is that the the United States was able to develop as a nation-state by destroying the nation-states of the indigenous people and then, you know, a grotesque transatlantic slave trade and then being very far isolated from any competing power, such as Britain and France, who had lost, you know, much, most of the interest in this after a while. Whereas the every single revolution since has come into power with direct foreign intervention from the day they got there. And the Soviet Union was invaded by 13 to 15 countries. I've studied that pretty well. Uh, the United States passes law. There's money given to, I forget the name of the group that's specifically there to overthrow the Venezuelan government. What's that group in Congress? Well, I'm not sure which one you mean, but there's the, the Democratic and Republican-sponsored um, Parties for democracy, or something, co- co- committees for democracy, and is that what you're referring to? Yeah, it's something. That, it's okay, but it's a it's a well-known think tank allegedly that is is getting money from the United States with the, the law, you know, says to overthrow the Venezuelan government. All right. So the point being is that how do you even build socialist democracy with the understanding that the United States is is definitely going to try to overthrow your government the minute you're there? Uh, one thing I think I, I argue for is you better have a good police force and you better have a good military. And you better have some ability to root out foreign agents. So all the things that we don't like about our own government, because it's not under any attack but anything but, you know, I do believe that other governments have to have some ability to do because whether it's Lumumba, whether it's, you know, uh, Allende, the United States will not let you breathe. And then, of course, when you do that, they claim that you're undemocratic, that you crack down on the opposition. The opposition is usually the United States in a different form. And then it does create certain internal crises in the country. That's my assessment of the the contradiction yeah. in Venezuela. Do you think that's right? And how are they uh, dealing with it? Yeah, well, it is. Because there there were, when I was there in 2017... There were mass demonstrations going on, and I went out and I talked to people, and you can tell fairly easily the kind of upper-middle-class, educated, light-skinned Venezuelans right, exactly. uh, who were made up the bulk of the protesters. Right. But there were working-class folks and dark-skinned Venezuelans, and you could tell by their accents and how they dress and, and et cetera. And um, they, were, they were fed up with the economy. If for them, it wasn't a question of communism or you know what U.S. imperialism was was or wasn't doing to them. If they were out of jobs, they were unemployed, and they blamed the government in power. Um, and I, I accurately predicted at that point that the demonstrations were actually on the wane, for which I got attacked viciously by the Venezuelan community in various parts of the North America. Uh, but the, within a matter of a month or two after I left, the demonstrations had had stopped. 
because the, I mean, it's a combination of factors. The government does have more popular support than is acknowledged generally here, although not anywhere near as much as it used to. Um, there is a weak but existing safety net that provides very, very basic material, you know, a food basket and so on for most Venezuelans. Um, and the fact that the, uh, the military and the police forces are strong. They continue to support Maduro. Chavez himself came out of the military. That's right. And that makes a big difference. The, the civilian governments that were overthrown that you mentioned were all led by civilians. Exactly right. From, uh, Allende and so on. That's right. They couldn't get to Chavez. They tried. They tried to overthrow him, and the military wouldn't allow it, you, you may recall. So um, uh, the Cubans actually told me, I had an interesting conversation with a leading Cuban, anti-Cuban government dissident who was living in Havana. He had uh, kind of given up active opposition and was living out his final days in Havana. And he said, you know, these Cuban revolutionaries, Fidel Castro, they were very clever. From the very opening days of the revolution, they infiltrated all the pro-U.S. dissident groups. Uh And they had their people inside. And every time we went to do something, they knew about it before many of our own people knew about it. And um, I, I know Venezuela does the same thing, which is it's not just brute repression. They've got a very sophisticated intelligence service, agencies, that, um, that carry out that kind of stuff. And, and of course, they're accused of being brutal, um, torturing, blah, 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 but that's because they're winning, at least so far. Well. This is great, Reese. I mean, you and I have been, you know, it's, it's, you know, for what it's worth, you and I have had a similar, not a similar, virtually identical uh, worldview, you know, since, since we, you know, you went to Cuba. Uh, I, I was supposed to go and... On, In the history I, of the left, that set some kind of a record. What's that? In the history of the left, that set some kind of a record. You think of all the splits and divisions and differences that have arisen. Yeah, well, I'm pretty good at, at not splitting, too, and finding unity with a lot of people. But you're right, and it's a pretty impressive thing. But I think that the anti-imperialist imperative, that's where I'm going with our audience all the time, is that, you know, to grasp that our government is the greatest purveyor of violence in the world, to grasp that, you know, I say to the Sanders people all the time, I know about... Uh, Medicare for all, and I know about Social Security, but are you really in any way concerned about what the United States is doing internationally? Are you on the side of the third world? And they go, third world? I don't even relate to it in L.A. Is there a third world in L.A.? I go, yeah, it's called South Central and East L.A. It's the majority of people there. So we have a problem, you know, where and yep. and where the white, uh, you know, Progressives with Elizabeth Warren and Bernie just do not have a clue, which raises a very exciting, hopeful thing again, which is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib and others who I think are trying very hard to build some kind of an anti-colonial consciousness inside their, their own base and inside the Democratic Party. Uh, just one thing I saw... Uh, uh, AOC did a beautiful on a lot of things. I think she's amazing, but she did a whole thing about Puerto Rico, and she said the the ultimate colonial the ultimate colonial punishment for 
Puerto Rico would be to become a state. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty good, right? Yeah. Especially when progressives, or at least some progressives, are calling for making Puerto Rico a state in order to provide votes for disenfranchised people. I think some folks are unfamiliar with the Puerto Rican independence movement and why that would be opposed by significant numbers of Puerto Ricans. So here's a question, Reese, as we go. One of the questions I always ask people, because I am a very hopeful person, is where's the hope, which people like, you know, because people say, this is wrong, this is wrong. I say, I know. But where's the hope? And I have a lot. You know, Channing is a very hopeful person. By the way, if you check him out, he ran, Channing Martinez ran for the city council and at 32 years old. He's now a grizzled veteran of 33 years old. But... uh, he ran an amazing campaign in the one of the last remaining, not even black majority, but significant black districts. He he got five percent of the vote in his first campaign. Uh, he got twenty four hundred votes, almost all from black voters, and uh, he ran an amazing campaign, including hands off Venezuela. Right. Uh, so maybe just tell a minute on that because that's one of the hopes, and then we'll go back to you. So why should why did you do why is it hopeful what you did? Well, I mean, I think that I'm, I was basically also trying to get people out of their self-interested community of can you cut the trees and take out the trash and act as if if only our neighborhoods are great, the whole world would be great and ignore the fact that you might be great and you might want socialism here in the United States, but... What does that have to do with Venezuela, who they're bombing and infiltrating? What does that have to do with Cuba, Iran, China, et cetera, et cetera? So when uh, the United States went after um, uh, Soleimani, right, I think is his name, uh, we did write an article from the campaign saying to stand up against Trump and stand up against the killing of Soleimani. And I think it's a very important piece that everyone is running for office no matter what level you're running for, should have an international stand. Well, you know, there's a book called Blacks Against Empire, which is about the Black Panthers, and I think Channing, uh, you know, we could talk more about the campaign, but I'm just trying to say that this is not abstract, right? We're in South Central right now trying to rebuild the black internationalist consciousness, which has been the central driver of internationalist consciousness inside the United States, and... uh, we're doing pretty good, you know. We're we're, we're uh, we have a community center called Strategy and Soul. Uh, we have a bus riders union. We we're in the streets of South LA all the time. We're, we're very well known there. We love a lot of the community groups. And when Channing stands up and says about cutting the LAPD by fifty percent, or that all fifty percent of all new jobs must go to black residents, and uh, the community took it very seriously because we came out of a community organizing base. So the fact that Jenny ran on hands off Venezuela, so that's all, so our hope, you know, we talk about the squad, and I talk about Channing as two sources of hope. Tell us from the point of view of the third world where you think the hope is. You're talking to me? Yes, Reese, I'm sorry, yes. yes. Um, well, I, I think there's a lot of hope both domestically and internationally. Okay, tell us. Um, so internationally, the U.S. is a declining empire. Exactly. You can see it in the Vietnam, well, Vietnam War, yeah. 
you see it in the Iraq War. I mean, we lost the Iraq War. <laughs> I, I, I hate to no, no, right. tell people, you know, shock people. We lost that war. Uh, we have lost so far the war against Iran, or the you know non-official war. Um, and you look at some of these events around the world that the U.S. would have intervened directly um, and, and imposed its will. It's nowhere to be found. Libya, or even Belarus. Um, huh. and there's these various crises that previously the U.S. either through diplomatic means or even military means would be dictating to people what the solution was, and they're not even there. Uh, that's hmm. a sign of a weakened empire. And by the way, that doesn't mean they should be there. No, I understand. It's, it's good. Um, now, uh, and so the theory is, oh, well, if the U.S. isn't there, then some other power is going to fill the vacuum, and it's either Russia or China or somebody. Right. And how evil that's going to be. But actually, when you look at what's actually happening, that's not the case. Sometimes there's regional powers involved. Sometimes there's no dominant power. Um, we talked a lot about China before, but China is a very strong economic power, but they have exactly one military base outside the land mass, of the, la- the territory of China. Oh, well, uh, the United States is 800. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so China is not a military threat to the U.S. or anybody else, for that matter. Um, and uh, they're not trying to fill a gap or anything like that. There's a lot more room for countries, in, particularly in the third world, to um, proceed in their own way. Domestically, I was talking about this with, with a younger guy uh, just the other day, a young African-American guy, and um, we were talking about history and that I had lived through 1968. And, you know, at the time, we knew a lot was going on. But today... It's a lot heavier when you think about the pandemic, yes. the Black Lives Matter movement, the economic crisis, the election, the potential of a, a, a president not leaving office. That's right, exactly right. You know, I mean, this is that makes 1968 look like a patty cake time, and that was a time when you had uprisings in France and huge anti-war and civil rights demonstrations in the United States and so on. Um, so. You know, I, I'm very hopeful that we are going to emerge out of this. I think Trump is going to lose. Um, I, that's not I'm to be sanguine or sit back and do nothing. We have to get out of there and make sure that he loses. Uh, but um, I, I think that's going to be a tremendous defeat for, for those in power and um, a, a realignment, at least in the short run, uh, that will be positive, much more positive than had he, had he won. Oh, absolutely, and, and I'll, I'll get a last a last word. And first of all, Reese, it's just a pleasure as always. The uh, what is the name of your your excellent? I went on your site, by the way, it's terrific. Uh, what's the? How do we people reach you? Uh, you can uh, contact me through reeserlich.com is my homepage. That's R E E S E E R L I C H dot com, and all my articles and speeches and speaking appearances and so on will be there. Um, and uh, they also my email in case people want to get in touch with me directly. So the easiest way is, is resource.com. All right. Yeah, I went on, as I said, it was a really good site. And, uh, you know, one, one thing I was thinking about is that, you know, Trump's statements, I was reading today that when Trump is telling people that he's not going to go, you know, he's not going to give up uh, because he has a very fascist base, this is actually energizing his base because they're saying, well, look, if he wins, he wins, and if the, he loses, it's only because of the communists and the Democrats. 
So protect Trump's right to be president, even if he loses the election. <laughs> it's, it's scary stuff. No, it's what I'm getting to is, yes, it's turning some people on, but he's a very smart fascist. And he's using this to get his, his troops riled up that help me win. And if the election says I lose, help me stay in power, essentially. Right. Now, I would say, on the other hand, what you just said, Reese, is obviously right. If tr- I think if if Biden-Harris wins, for people like ourselves who have a base, uh, there's a lot, you know, we know there's a lot of danger of democratic cooptation, but we'd love to have that problem. <laughs> and I think, you know what I mean? I mean, that would be the difference in cooptation and fascism is a big difference. And I think there's going to be a burst of energy in the black community, a burst of energy in the Latino community. You know, I don't think it's just going to be elect us and get out of the way. You know, I think that AOC has made it very clear that Biden's role is to open the door, and it's our role to drive right into it. Yeah, and all the people who participated in the Black Lives Matter demonstrations and all the, you know, there was a workers' one-day strike in support of Black Lives Matter here at the Port of Oakland, uh, and the folks who supported Bernie Sanders for president, all of those folks are still around. They're not going anywhere. Uh, and it's a question of, I think, their, I agree with you, their energy will be released with a defeat of Trump. So, Reese, it's and a play. in the streets. Maybe filmed by TikTok. Yeah, dancing in the streets would be great. I haven't done that in a while. Give us one, what we got, one minute, D'Angelo? Or in 30 seconds, why do you think Biden's going to win? I want you to be right, of course. Um, I think he will win because people are fed up with Trump. The combination of the mishandling of the disastrous uh, coronavirus epidemic, uh, his the, the bad economy, and his arrogance, uh, and, and general. That's it. Thank you, Reese. <laughs> that was your one minute. And listen, it's been a pleasure. You're doing wonderful work. Uh, everybody, this is Eric Mann and Channing Martinez saying goodbye. Next week is going to start a fund drive. And we're going to run regular programming and a lot of fundraising. We're going to try to do it well. So get your credit cards ready because next Tuesday we're going to be asking you to support independent journalism such as Reese Ehrlich. It's a pleasure, Reese, and we'll stay in touch. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, everyone. See you next week. All power to the people. I've had a fear.